You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, a little while back, um, Warren Buffett donated $750 million to charity. And then Bill Gates came along and said, that's cute. And he gave $5 billion to charity, which was a pretty darn substantial gift. And one of the larger ones until somebody came strolling up in his Tesla and gave $5.7 billion to charity. Look at the picture they got of Musk, by the way. That's an interesting choice. And you see these different, these huge gifts that people give, and there's a part of me just going, well, God, that'd be nice. Like, I wish I had enough that I could give so generously like that, that I could just give that much and have that big, big of an impact. If I just had a little more money, I'd be able to do that, or I guess a lot more money, excuse me, I should clarify that. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, or if it was, if I just had more time, then I could really just give of my time better. If I just, if I knew more, if I was a little wiser, a little smarter, then I'd really be able to make like a big kind of donation like that to really invest. Or if I just had more influence, I just feel like I have so little right now. And if I just had more, then I'd be able to do whatever the influence equivalent of $5.7 billion is, like to be able to just influence and influence and just help people. Like there's something in me that goes, that's really, really exciting. But the problem is, on all those areas, I'm always going to know somebody that has more. I'm always gonna know somebody that has more money, more time, more wisdom, more influence, more everything than I have. And so my, my, my gift, my offering, whatever it is, can feel very small compared to what others are able to do. And so then I have to ask myself, does what I'm doing really, really matter? If the standard is a $750 million or billions or whatever it is, it's a target that I'm never, ever going to be able to hit. And there's really good news from this text that, we, that you just heard read, that you may have heard many, many times. If you've been in church, you've probably heard this before. But what, what, we're, what we see here is, yes, Jesus is going to give his followers a target that, in a sense, they can hit. Because God is going to go after hearts. Our world applauds quantity, and that's great that they're able to do this. And I, I'm, I'm sort of that glass half full guy that doesn't get all skeptical like they just did it for show or to win the news cycle. I, I go, that's great. A bunch of money just got put into some benevolent, organ I don't know what it all went to, sorry, but to, to hopefully benevolent organizations that are helping people. I, I, I'm kind of that guy, but I look and I, and I go, I can't ever do that. But the, what you're gonna hear today is God is going after hearts. That it's not the, the quantity of the gift, it's not the, even the action necessarily itself, it's the heart behind it that matters. Even the tiniest of sacrifices from a pure heart is the most beautiful act of worship to God. Even the smallest sacrifice, even the smallest giving, and it, here the example is she's, she's giving and she's giving a couple copper coins, but remember, this is an act of worship, so I think we could expand this even farther to say any, any little act of worship that we have, any conversation that we have with another, any um, you know, evangelistic attempt that we have with somebody else, any prayer that we left, all those different things, the sacrifices from a pure heart are the most beautiful act of worship to God. So you just, heard, you just heard it read. It's a whopping four verses this morning. Let me, let me just set the scene of what's happening because we're in this Lent season where we're getting to the cross, we're getting to the resurrection, and so we're just calling this watching and waiting. 
And we're gonna be in Luke's gospel and we're just gonna hit some different stories that are gonna help prepare our hearts for Easter. And this is one where there's tension right now between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. They don't like some of the stuff that he's doing. And so Jesus is teaching in the temple, and it's interesting. Uh, He's teaching in the temple, and it keeps telling us he's teaching, but we don't get to hear a whole bunch of his teaching because these guys keep coming up and interrupting him. And so what we see more of is he's teaching, he's teaching, and then these guys come up and they interrupt him, they ask him questions, they're trying to trap him, trying to trick him. And so what we see more in scripture is his response to the people who are interrupting him even more than the actual teaching that he's doing in some of these cases. And so these guys keep coming up, they keep interrupting him. This is the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, and they come up, first thing they do is they try to trick him. This is, so we just read Luke 21, this is back in Luke 20. They say, by by whose authority do you do this? By whose authority are you here teaching in the temple? The nerve. And they're saying, is it uh, it, uh, from heaven or is it just from earth? And they're trying to trap him because if he says from heaven, they can shout blasphemy. But if he says that it's, no, it's just worldly wisdom that I'm teaching, now all of a sudden he is publicly admitting that, uh, that he is just like anybody else who's teaching. Or wisdom I have is from the world. And so Jesus hears the question and he knows exactly what they're doing. And remember, he's in teaching mode. So all these people are watching and listening to this. And so he says, well, let me ask you a question. He says, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, was it from heaven or was it from man? And, he, and they go, oh no, this is gonna be, uh, this is gonna be a, a problem for us because if we say heaven, they're gonna say, well then why didn't, he, Jesus is gonna go, well why didn't you believe John then? If you thought it was really God's doing, his baptism, that it was some supernatural kind of thing, why didn't you, uh, why, why didn't you believe him? But if it's just from, if they say, no, 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 it's just from people, just from mankind, then uh, that's not gonna go well with the people because they really are liking him. And so Jesus goes, gets this question, it's supposed to be a trap. He goes, I got one for you. And he asks them the trap question back. And they go, uh, we don't know. And he says, then I'm not gonna tell you the answer to your question. Tension rising just a little bit. And then he tells a parable of the wicked tenants, T-E-N-A-N-T-S, tenants. And he gets through the whole parable and the, the bad guys are these wicked tenants, obviously, and the leaders are starting to listen to it and go, hey, wait a minute. He just made us the bad guy in his parable. We're the wicked tenants. And so he, they don't like that very much at all. And so it says they wanted to lay hands on him right then. They wanted to take him right then, but it says they feared the people. The people really liked him, so they couldn't. So tension. And then they go to trick him again. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere, trying to catch him in something that he might say. So then they could get the, the authorities involved. They could get the politicians involved. And so they, they, uh, they're listening and listening and listening, and they can't find anything. And then they finally just ask the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which is another trap question. Because if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to go, What? This Roman Empire that's oppressing us, how dare you? And if he says, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, if those are the only options, then they're gonna go, aha, we're gonna go tell Rome that this guy is walking around saying, don't pay your taxes. And so they're going, what you gonna say, Jesus? And Jesus does the famous line where he says, give me a coin. Whose who's image and inscription is on this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And the tension rises even more. 
The Sadducees come in, they try to trick him. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They had this whole strangely concocted thing and Jesus just puts them in their place and the tension rises even more. And then it gets to um, Luke chapter 20, right at the very end. It says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Listen to this, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. You see in the tension just building and building and building and building. And then he says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. This is, if you've seen the, um, the, the layouts of the temple, this is the outermost, it's called the Court of the Women, and it's the outermost court, so everybody would pass through there. And so these guys are out there giving their offerings there to be seen, we'll see in just a little bit. And there were these 13 receptacles, and depending on the time, they, um, sometimes they looked like a trumpet sort of thing. Um, we think maybe at Jesus' time, they were more of a box that opened, and they would go, and here, here he sees the rich people putting in their offering in the box, and a poor widow putting in, um, two small copper coins. And to this point, if you didn't know the punchline, to this point, this is neutral. This is just people with different degrees of money, different degrees of wealth, that are putting something in the box, and right now it's just recording it. In fact, the, um, the, the poor woman here, the poor widow, she puts in, it says, two small copper coins. Oftentimes we just say, you know, two pennies are, are put in there. If you, if you look on Wikipedia, which I don't know, but um, if you look on Wikipedia it's, um, and try to find the origin of the phrase, putting in your two cents, Wikipedia will say it goes all the way back. This is the earliest recorded thing that we have of it. Take that for what it's worth. But, that's, but you could think of it, that's what she's doing. She's putting in two copper coins, uh, duolepta. Alepta is the smallest coin in the, uh, in the Roman world and duo, two of them. She's putting in these two small copper coins and so a, um, a denarius is a day's wage, and this equivalent is about one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. She is not putting in very much. And the wealthy are putting in a lot more. So if you're there that day, and some of you, I, again, I know a lot of people have heard this, but pretend you haven't. If you're there that day watching, and you're watching this woman put it in, and you're probably seeing some external stuff to lead you to believe she may not have a lot, and then here she is putting something in, isn't there a part of you going, is it even worth her doing that? Why bother? Isn't, isn't that money better with you than it is putting it in the offering, so to speak? And what about the leaders that are there? Because remember, this is the context is confrontation with the leaders as well. And if you're the leader in the temple, can we be real honest? Whose donation do you care about more? The wealthy? Or do you care about someone that puts in a 64th of a day's wage? If you just think pragmatically, you can go, I could lose the giving of a hundred of these women, and as long as I keep one of these rich people, I'll make out okay. The context is Jesus is facing off against the leaders of the temple, and so it does, it does, make, me, it does make me think uh, about if, if the temple, which it had done, it has be, had become a business 
That's one of the biggest things that he starts rebuking. It becomes a moneymaker. Remember the money changers in the temple. Um, there's other instances where the rich get special privileges and the poor don't, which is, uh, is not exactly upside down, but it's a little bit upside down from what Jesus had said about who we're supposed to care about. So it makes me think, church leadership today, if we take it to 2023, to think, um, are there churches that have become fundraising organizations? Are there churches that have become uh, businesses that uh, leadership in the church could bend towards certain wealthier people or certain groups of people or certain generations of people that have the money in the church and so you, get, you gotta gear everything towards them? You see what a dangerous, dangerous trap that can be? Start just bending towards whoever has at that particular moment? Instead of saying, we're trying to discern the voice of God, we're trying to say, we're trying to keep this thing afloat. Like, what they would be doing and what they would probably be thinking of, I'm glad the rich people are here, and that's nice that she's here, that's fine, but I really need to make sure these people are taken care of. Like, that is a, a brilliant business way of looking at things. I remember we had, um, this was, gosh, 15 years ago or so, um, we had, I think it was AT&T at the time, we had some, like, Xfinity, basically, that we had our cable through them, and I kept, and not our internet, not our phone, nothing like that. And so I kept calling for customer service because some stuff was messed up. And um, I, I recall it took me forever to get through. And then somebody told me, you know what you should do is you should get one company and bundle everything together because they like you better as a customer. And I said, really? And they were like, yeah, really. And they said that if you call from a line, that is tied to your account, it flags it and says, this guy has internet and cable and phone with us. So he goes to the front of the line. And I was like, no, that's crazy. And so I did it. And they were right. And listen, I don't even fault this company, I don't, if it's AT&T or whoever it was, I don't even fault them for doing that. Like I go, that's probably really smart and efficient and effective business. I, I have all this money, I can spend it here, 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 but I'm gonna choose to spend it all with you. And they go, well, we're gonna put you right to the front of the line. Like it makes sense in a business, it doesn't make sense in a church. I, I do have to say, it's, if you think about the, the, the pull of the church, um, I, I should preface this by saying, I think Rockland does a really good job of prayerfully talking about things like a website and a budget and like all those different things we think of sort of the business end. So this isn't a condemnation on our church or anything like that. In fact, I've got some things I'll, I'll tell you about that we do that, you, that is probably important to know. But this is, um, this is the church of Jesus Christ first. And yes, there's some business principles and there's, we've got our tax stuff and we've got our, we're, we're in, the, you know, in the nation and in the state and so we've got all the stuff we have to file and all those kinds of things. First and foremost, it's a church of Jesus Christ. And one of, the, one of the indicators that a church can start to turn a little bit is if we go, first and foremost, we're a business. And then by the way, we're also a church. Think how, how tricky this can be, though, because you have, you know, a church's thing where you get tons of volunteers and you get people that all day long are having to make business decisions and think like that, and then they come into the church and go, oh, don't think like that. Think differently. This is the church of Jesus Christ. There's some, there's some overlap for sure, but first and foremost, we come to it as believers. I said the point of a church is not making budgets, but making disciples, the point of a church is not making budget, but making disciples. I have to tell you, we, we do take this very seriously here at Rockland. I'm really glad that we do, actually. Because um, I, I, I have a conviction that if we, 
if we hit our budget every year, if we have some other metrics that we come up with and it looks like you know, there's growth and it looks like things are good, but we are not making disciples, what does our divine scorecard look like? F. We are about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So I said, the phrase I've been using, I actually got this from my, from my last pastor. It was like one of my last days when I was there and he said this and I was like, oh, I'm stealing that. Uh, church boardrooms are first and foremost upper rooms. Church boardrooms are first and foremost upper rooms. And that's elder board, that's deacon teams, that's staff teams. The first thing we're doing is on our face before the Lord and saying, this is your church, your thing, you're doing, what do you want from us? Help us find where you're working, help us follow where you're leading us. We've got to make sure we're the lighthouse in the city on the hill that we're called to be. But it, it does make me think as I'm, as I'm reading this to just a, perhaps a little bit of an aside to think about God has ordained the church to be something and then what are all the different ways that it can sort of lose our mission. But I was also thinking about what about a home? What about a home? Has a home become, like we have three kids. Has a home become a place where really what we do is we work there. We are scheduling, we are doing dinner, we are cleaning dishes, we are looking at our finances, we are just like going through all the minutia of life and our home really has become a place of business. It's just a little, maybe a little different business. It's the business of life. I, in fact, I also, I noticed because um, after COVID, I've noted that a lot of people working from home, I think that temptation to make it just like, this is the organizational center of our world, um, I think that has even increased because the office is, is right there. Man, can I, just, can I just pause and say, before your home is some just sort of functional place to help you and then eventually you end up you know, eating and sleeping there, that first and foremost, it is a worship center. That is what our homes are to be, is there's this, this loving, welcoming, this is, you know, family is here. That's what they're supposed to be. It's we're worshiping God together. This is our retreat. And oftentimes throughout life, what happens is just the busyness of life crowds out just the joy and the savoring of the things that God has given us. So I'm constantly looking and go, okay, as a church, are we becoming a business? I hope not. Or just a business, I should say. But I'm also looking and starting to go, what about my house? What about your house? Well, he's giving a rebuke to the authorities, but there's also a, group, a rebuke to one group of people and then a praise to one person as well. Verse three, he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Them are the wealthy who were going and they were putting in a lot more than she was. And here's why. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, let me just be clear about what's happening here because if wealthy people give a lot, it's not an inherently bad thing. That's not what he's saying. What he's getting to is the motive behind it. And you know, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is rebuking people who are giving for show. They loved listening to the sound of it clanging. They had plenty to give. There's no sacrifice. It cost them nothing. In fact, I think what he's talking about is that they gained something by it. Remember, throughout the Gospels, he says, don't do your giving to be seen by others. 
And that's exactly what they're doing here. And Mark's gospel has a little more of this account as well. But I just picture them standing there in the, in the outer court, these men in the court of the women that are sitting there because the most people could go in there, just standing there and just getting their coins and running by the Wells Fargo before they get there and go, can you take this big thing and can you change it to like a million? What are the noisiest coins that you have? That's what I want. And then standing there by the box and kind of giving it a, Oh, not a lot of people are around. Oh, there they are. Cling, clang, cling, clang. Oh, hey, how is everybody? Is everybody? Cling, clang, cling, clang. Getting attention and attention and attention. And I just picture that. I don't know why I picture her like down. I picture this woman almost like crawling over there and just, just with nobody noticing, just setting in two little copper coins. They're doing something. Like th- this is why I think they're gaining from it. Um, I almost feel like it's, I almost feel like I put down, I almost feel like it's a marketing expense. Like they want to be so self-branded and be so thought of as self-righteous that for them to go cling clang, cling clang is not even that big of a deal because they're going, I'm getting the attention from it. Contrast to the poor widow who did this, get this, who made the most famous donation in all of human history. And she doesn't want a soul to notice her. And Jesus does. There was a, a pastor in Boston who um, was trying to raise some funds, and so uh, he stood up one day and he said, "For those of you who give to this really, really great cause, um, you know, next week in the worship service, I'll be sure to say your name and to tell everybody how much you gave." Yeah, it sounds miserable, doesn't it? And when he did this, he actually used, and he said, even if it's not a lot, and he quoted this story of this, this poor widow to justify what he was doing. And there was actually, there was a missionary from, uh, um, uh, this was in Boston, there was a missionary that was in town and was just visiting, and it was in the back, and he, uh, he stood up, and he said, will the speaker please give us the name of that poor widow? One commentator said she had a wealth of self-forgetfulness. Think about the wealthy. They're giving what they could spare, and she had nothing to spare, but she gave anyway. And the heart of the matter is they are obsessed with receiving praise from others, and all she cares about is worshiping the Lord. So which one is demonstrating to be a disciple of Christ? Jesus sees the heart behind the action. And I think he's demonstrating his supernatural ability in this because he can see the heart behind what they're doing. I have a commentary from 1904. I love this. He says about this text, the searching eye of the master struck through the outward demeanor of each passing worshiper right down to the motive that swayed the hand. He was reading the heart of each giver. He was marking whether the gift was the mere fruit of a devotionless habit or as it ought to be, a humble and sincere token of gratitude and consecration to God. Jesus is looking at hearts. God wants hearts. And hearts are, hearts are, are, are difficult. It's hard to really speak to what's going on in somebody's heart. Do I, do I, as a pastor, really know what's going on in your heart? Maybe if I really get to know you, Maybe if I have some sort of just divine revelation to be able to see or just speak some words, it might just kind of hit you in the heart or something like that. But at the end of the day, I have to tap out and go, I can't really 100% know what's really going on in your heart. I have some guesses. I can have some assumptions. 
but I can't really know, which makes it difficult for, like if I'm in your seat, now it's difficult for us as hearers when we see God's going after the heart and the pastor says, God wants your heart, because like, whoa, 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 how can you possibly know where my heart is? Like we can kind of hide behind at times, uh, I'm the only one that really knows my heart. And what he's saying is God does. Let me remind you today of something that you already know. If you feel like you can't give as much, you can't do as much, you can't help as much, you can't speak as much, whatever it is, God knows your heart. Don't ever feel like what you have to give in any of those areas, this one's about money, but it's in any of those areas, is too small to matter. Time spent might feel like a little bit of time. I bet you if we went through the room, I bet you there would be all sorts of just little bitty conversations that you've had over your life that have aggregated to make you the person that you are today. We have the opportunity to do that for others. It might seem like a small thing. Well, I, don't, I don't have that much time, but I have a little time. And this is my act of worship to the Lord to go and spend it. Time spent, words spoken, hugs given, gifts bought, prayers lifted, Somebody who's going, I don't really have much influence because honestly, I'm just not, um, I'm not real influential in our community. I'm kind of small potatoes in the business or somebody who's maybe a young person going, I'm just a kid is not too small in the hands of almighty God. Whatever we do from a pure heart is an act of worship to God and he receives it as worship. That same commentary I mentioned earlier says this. I love how he phrases this about the woman's gift. It says, it was all done so quietly, so noiselessly, but oh, believe me, the sound of that little coin falling into God's treasury that night rose above the roar and din of the mighty city and was heard with joy in the very presence of God himself. She shows herself to be a true disciple. If you remember through Luke's gospel, what he keeps talking about is sacrifice. Leave everything for me. I am worth everything. And here is this woman doing just that. And so I feel like I've said this many times, but you can tell how much you love something by what you're willing to sacrifice for it. That's why the Christian life is marked by sacrifice. We give time, we give money, we give our heart. We give all these different things to God and to his people. What makes it um, even more remarkable, if you think about it, is if you can really tell how much you love something by what you're willing to sacrifice for it or by what you're willing to give for it, don't ever forget this. That there was a night that Jesus was with his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body, and then what did he say? Given for you. If the value of something, if how much you love something is by what you are willing to sacrifice for it, God must love you and me an awful lot. 